Part One of Rosalind by Thomas Lodge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Rosalind, Euphuie's golden legacy, found after his death in his cell at Silicetra, bequeathed to Philotus' sons, nursed up with their father in England. Fetched from the Canaries by T. L. Gent, London, imprinted by Thomas Orwin for Tichy and John Busby, 1590. To the Right Honourable and his most esteemed Lord, the Lord of Hunsdon, Lord Chamberlain, to Her Majesty's Household and Governor of her town of Barwick, T. L. G. wisheth increase of all honourable virtues. Such Romans, Right Honourable, as delighted in martial exploits, attempted their actions in the honor of Augustus, because he was a patron of soldiers, and Virgil dignified him with his poems as a Mycenas of scholars, both jointly advancing his royalty as a prince warlike and learned. Such as sacrifice to Pallas, present her with bays, as she is wise, and with armor, as she is valiant, observing herein that excellent toprepon, which dedicateth honors according to the perfection of the person. When I entered Right Honourable with a deep insight into the consideration of these premises, seeing your lordship to be a patron of all martial men, and a Mycenas of such as apply themselves to study, wearing with Pallas both the lance and the bay, and aiming with Augustus at the favour of all by the honourable virtues of your mind, being myself first a student and after falling from books to arms, even vowed in all my thoughts dutifully to affect your lordship. Having with Captain Clark made a voyage to the islands of Terceras and the Canaries, to beguile the time with labor, I writ this book, rough as hatched in the storms of the ocean and feathered in the surges of many perilous seas. But as it is the work of a soldier and a scholar, I presume to shroud it under your honor's patronage, as one that is the fauter and favorer of all virtuous actions, and whose honorable loves, grown from the general applause of the whole commonwealth for your higher deserts, may keep it from the malice of every bitter tongue. Other reasons more particular, right honorable, challenge in me a special affection to your lordship, as being a scholar with your two noble sons, Master Edmund Carey and Master Robert Carey, two scions worthy of so honorable a tree, and tree glorious in such honorable fruit, as also being scholar in the university under that learned and virtuous knight Sir Edward Hoby, when he was bachelor in arts, a man as well lettered as well born, and after the etymology of his name, soaring as high as the wings of knowledge can mount him, happy every way, and the more fortunate as blessed in the honor of so virtuous a lady, Thus, right honourable, the duty that I owe to the sons chargeth me that all my affection be placed on the father. For where the branches are so precious, the tree of force must be most excellent. Commanded and emboldened thus with the consideration of these four past reasons to present my book to your lordship, I humbly entreat your honourable vouch of my labours and favour a soldier's and a scholar's pen with your gracious acceptance who answers in affection what he wants in eloquence. So devoted to your honor, 
as his only desire is to end his life under the favor of so martial and learned a patron. Resting thus in hope of your lordship's courtesy in deigning the patronage of my work, I cease wishing you as many honorable fortunes as your lordship can desire, or I imagine. Your honor's soldier, humbly affectionate, Thomas Lodge. To the gentlemen readers, gentlemen, look not here to find any sprigs of palace bay tree, nor to hear the humor of any amorous laureate, nor the pleasing vein of any eloquent orator. Nolo altum sapere. They be matters above my capacity. The cobbler's check shall never light on my head, nesutor ultra crepidam. I will go no further than the latchet, and then all is well. Here you may perhaps find some leaves of Venus myrtle, but hewn down by a soldier with his kirtle-axe, not brought with the allurement of a filed tongue. To be brief, gentlemen, room for a soldier and a sailor, that gives you the fruits of his labors that he wrote in the ocean, when every line was wet with a surge, and every humorous passion counterchecked with a storm. If you like it, so. And yet I will be yours in duty if you be mine in favor. But if Momus or any squint-eyed ass that hath mighty ears to conceive with Midas, and yet little reason to judge, if he come aboard our bark to find fault with the tackling, when he knows not the shrouds, I'll down into the hold and fetch out a rusty pole-axe that saw no sun this seven year, and either well baste him or heave the coxcomb overboard to feed cods. But courteous gentlemen that favor most, backbite none, and pardon what is overslipped, let such come and welcome. I'll into the steward's room and fetch them a can of our best beverage. Well, gentlemen, you have Euphua's legacy. I fetched it as far as the island of Terceros, and therefore read it, censure with favor, and farewell. Yours, T. L. Rosalind. There dwelled adjoining to the city of Bordeaux a knight of most honorable parentage, whom fortune had graced with many favors, and nature honored with sundry exquisite qualities, so beautified with the excellence of both, as it was a question whether fortune or nature were more prodigal in deciphering the riches of their bounties. Wise he was, as holding in his head a supreme conceit of policy, reaching with Nestor into the depth of all civil government. And to make his wisdom more gracious, he had that solemn ingenii and pleasant eloquence that was so highly commended in Ulysses. His valor was no less than his wit, nor the stroke of his lance no less forcible than the sweetness of his tongue was persuasive. For he was for his courage chosen the principal of all the knights of Malta. This hardy knight, thus enriched with virtue and honor, surnamed Sir John of Bordeaux, having passed the prime of his youth in sundry battles against the Turks, at last, as the date of time hath his course, grew aged. His hairs were silver-hued, and the map of age was figured on his forehead. Honor sat in the furrows of his face, and many years were portrayed in his wrinkled lineaments, that all men might perceive his glass was run, and that nature of necessity challenged her due. Sir John, that with the phoenix knew the term of his life was now expired, and could with the swan discover his end by her songs, having three sons by his wife, Linida, 
the very pride of all his forepast years, thought now, seeing death by constraint would compel him to leave them, to bestow upon them such a legacy as might bewray his love and increase their ensuing amity. Calling therefore these young gentlemen before him, in the presence of all his fellow knights of Malta, he resolved to leave them a memorial of his fatherly care, in setting down a method of their brotherly duties. Having therefore death in his looks to move them to pity, and tears in his eyes to paint out the depth of his passions, taking his eldest son by the hand, he began thus. Sir John of Bordeaux's legacy he gave to his sons. O oh, my sons, you see that fate hath set a period of my years, and destinies have determined the final end of my days. The palm-tree waxeth a wayward, for he stoopeth in his height, and my plumes are full of sick feathers touched with age. I must to my grave that dischargeth all cares, and leave you to the world that increaseth many sorrows. My silver hairs containeth great experience, and in the number of my years are penned down the subtleties of fortune. Therefore, as I leave you some fading pelf to countercheck poverty, so I will bequeath you infallible precepts that shall lead you unto virtue. First, therefore, unto thee, Saladine the eldest, and therefore the chiefest pillar of my house, wherein should be engraven as well the excellence of thy father's qualities as the essential form of his proportion. To thee I give fourteen plough-lands with all my manor-houses and richest plate. Next unto Fernadine I bequeath twelve plough-lands, but to Rossiter, the youngest, I give my horse, my armor, and my lance, with sixteen plough-lands. For if the inward thoughts be discovered by outward shadows, Rossiter will exceed you all in bounty and honor. Thus, my sons, have I parted in your portions the substance of my wealth, wherein, if you be as prodigal to spend as I have been careful to get, your friends will grieve to see you more wasteful than I was bountiful, and your foes smile that my fall did begin in your excess. Let mine honor be the glass of your actions, and the fame of my virtues the lodestar to direct the course of your pilgrimage. Aim your deeds by my honorable endeavors, and show yourselves scions worthy of so flourishing a tree, lest, as the bird's halcyons, which exceed in whiteness, I hatch young ones that surpass in blackness. Climb not, my sons, aspiring pride is a vapor that ascendeth high, but soon turneth to smoke. They which stare at the stars stumble upon stones, and such as gaze at the sun, unless they be eagle-eyed, fall blind. Soar not with the hobby, note, falcon, lest you fall with the lark, nor attempt not with Phaeton, lest you drown with Icarus. Fortune, when she wills you to fly, tempers your plumes with wax, and therefore either sit still and make no wing, or else beware the sun and hold Daedalus' axiom authentical, medium tenera tutissimum. Low shrubs have deep roots, and poor cottages great patience. Fortune looks ever upward, and envy aspireth to nestle with dignity. Take heed, my sons, the mean is sweetest melody, where strings high-stretched either soon crack or quickly grow out of tune. Let your country's care be your heart's content, 
and think that you are not born for yourselves, but to level your thoughts, to be loyal to your prince, careful for the commonweal, and faithful to your friends, so shall France say, these men are as excellent in virtues as they be exquisite in features. O oh, my sons, a friend is a precious jewel within whose bosom you may unload your sorrows and unfold your secrets, and he either will relieve with counsel or persuade with reason, but take heed in the choice. The outward show makes not the inward man, nor are the dimples in the face the calendars of truth. When the licorice leaf looketh most dry, then it is most wet. When the shores of Lepanthus are most quiet, then they forepoint a storm. The barren leaf, the more fair it looks, the more infectious it is, and in the sweetest words is oft hid the most treachery. Therefore, my sons, choose a friend as the hyperborei do the metals. Sever them from the ore with fire, and let them not bide the stamp before they be current. So try, and then trust. Let time be touchstone of friendship, and then friends faithful lay them up for jewels. Be valiant, my sons, for cowardice is the enemy to honor, but not too rash, for that is an extreme. Fortitude is the mean, and that is limited within bonds and prescribed with circumstance. But above all, and with that he fetched a deep sigh, beware of love, for it is far more perilous than pleasant, and yet I tell you it allureth as ill as the sirens. O oh, my sons, fancy is a fickle thing, and beauty's paintings are tricked up with time's colors, which being set to dry in the sun perish with the same. Venus is a wanton, and though her laws pretend liberty, yet there is nothing but loss and glistering misery. Cupid's wings are plumed with the feathers of vanity, and his arrows, where they pierce, enforce nothing but deadly desires. A woman's eye, as it is precious to behold, so is it prejudicial to gaze upon, for as it affordeth light, so it snareth unto death. Trust not their fawning favors, for their loves are like the breath of a man upon steel, which no sooner lighteth on, but it leapeth off and their passions are as momentary as the colors of a polyp, which changeth at the sight of every object. My breath waxeth short, and mine eyes dim. The hour is come, and I must away. Therefore let this suffice. Women are wantons, and yet man cannot want one. And therefore, if you love, choose her that hath her eyes of adamant, that will turn only to one point, her heart of a diamond that will receive but one form, her tongue of a sethin leaf that never wags but with a southeast wind. And yet, my sons, if she have all these qualities to be chaste, obedient, and silent, yet for that she is a woman shalt thou find in her sufficient vanities to countervail her virtues. Oh, now, my sons, even now, Take these my last words as my latest legacy, for my thread is spun, and my foot is in the grave. Keep my precepts as memorials of your father's counsels, and let them be lodged in the secret of your hearts. For wisdom is better than wealth, and a golden sentence worth a world of treasure. In my fall see and mark, my sons, the folly of man, that being dust climbeth 
with Biares to reach at the heavens, and ready every minute to die, yet hopeth for an age of pleasures. O man's life is like lightning that is but a flash, and the longest date of his years but as a bavin's note, faggots, blaze. Seeing then man is so mortal, be careful that thy life be virtuous, that thy death may be full of admirable honors. So shalt thou challenge fame to be thy fautor, note, patron, and put oblivion to exile with thine honorable actions. But, my sons, lest you should forget your father's axioms, take this scroll, wherein read what your father, dying, wills you to execute, living. At this he shrunk down in his bed and gave up the ghost. John of Bordeaux, being thus dead, was greatly lamented of his sons, and bewailed of his friends, especially of his fellow knights of Malta, who attended on his funerals, which were performed with great solemnity. His obsequies done, Saladine caused next his epitaph, the contents of the scroll to be portrayed out, which were to this effect, the contents of the schedule which Sir John of Bordeaux gave to his sons. My sons, behold what portion I do give. I leave you goods, but they are quickly lost. I leave advice to school you how to live. I leave you wit, but one with little cost. But keep it well, for counsel still is one when father, friends, and worldly goods are gone. In choice of thrift, let honor be thy gain. Win it by virtue and by manly might. In doing good, esteem thy toil no pain. Protect the fatherless and widow's right. Fight for thy faith, thy country, and thy king. For why? This thrift will prove a blessed thing. In choice of wife, prefer the modest chaste. Lilies are fair in show, but foul in smell. The sweetest looks by age are soon defaced. Then choose thy wife by wit and living well. Who brings thee wealth, and many faults withal, presents thee honey mixed with bitter gall. In choice of friends, beware of light belief. A painted tongue may shroud a subtle heart. The siren's tears do threaten mickle grief. For see, my sons, for fear of sudden smart, choose in thy wants, and he that friends thee then, when richer grown, befriend thou him again. Learn of the ant in summer to provide, drive with the bee the drone from out thy hive, build like the swallow in the summer tide, spare not too much, my sons, but sparing thrive, be poor in folly, Rich in all but sin, so by thy death thy glory shall begin. Saladine, having thus set up the schedule, and hanged about his father's hearse many passionate poems, that France might suppose him to be passing sorrowful, he clad himself and his brothers all in black, and in such sable suits discoursed his grief. But as the hyena, when she mourns, is then most guileful, so Saladine, under this show of grief, shadowed a heart full of contented thoughts. The tiger, though he hide his claws, will at last discover his rapine. The lion's looks are not the maps of his meaning, nor a man's physnomy is not the display of his secrets. Fire cannot be hid in the straw, 
nor the nature of man so concealed, but at last it will have his course. Nurture and art may do much, but that natura naturans, which by propagation is engrafted in the heart, will be at last perforce predominant, according to the old verse, naturam expellas furca tamen usque recurret. So fared it with Saladine, for after a month's mourning was passed, he fell to consideration of his father's testament, how he had bequeathed more to his younger brothers than himself, that Rossiter was his father's darling. But now under his tuition, that as yet they were not come to years, and he being their guardian, might, if not defraud them of their due, yet make such havoc of their legacies and lands as they should be a great deal the lighter whereupon he began thus to meditate with himself. Saladine's meditation with himself. Saladine, how art thou disquieted in thy thoughts, and perplexed with a world of restless passions, having thy mind troubled with the tenor of thy father's testament, and thy heart fired with the hope of present preferment? By the one thou art counselled to content thee with thy fortunes, by the other persuaded to aspire to higher wealth, Riches, Saladine, is a great royalty, and there is no sweeter physic than store. Avicen, like a fool, forgot in his aphorisms to say that gold was the most precious restorative, and that treasure was the most excellent medicine of the mind. O oh, Saladine, what, were thy father's precepts breathed into the wind? Hast thou so soon forgotten his principles? Did he not warn thee from coveting without honor, and climbing without virtue? Did he not forbid thee to aim at any action that should not be honorable? And what will be more prejudicial to thy credit than the careless ruin of thy brother's welfare? Why, shouldst not thou be the pillar of thy brother's prosperity, and wilt thou become the subversion of their fortunes? Is there any sweeter thing than concord, or a more precious jewel than amity? Are you not sons of one father, scions of one tree, birds of one nest? And wilt thou become so unnatural as to rob them whom thou shouldst relieve? No, Saladine, entreat them with favors, and entertain them with love. So shalt thou have thy conscience clear, and thy renown excellent. Tush! What words are these, base fool? Far unfit, if thou be wise, for thy humor. What though thy father at his death talked of many frivolous matters, as one that doted for age and raved in his sickness? Shall his words be axioms, and his talk be so authentical that thou wilt to observe them prejudice thyself? No, no, Saladine, sick men's wills that are peril, note, oral, and have neither hand nor seal, are like the laws of a city written in dust, which are broken with the blast of every wind. What man thy father is dead, and he can neither help thy fortunes nor measure thy actions. Therefore bury his words with his carcass, and be wise for thyself. What, tis not so old as true, non sapit, qui sibi non sapit. Thy brother is young. Keep him now in awe. Make him not checkmate Note. with thyself. For nimia familiaritas contemptum parit. Let him know little, so shall he not be able to execute much. 
suppress his wits with a base estate, and though he be a gentleman by nature, yet form him anew, and make him a peasant by nurture, so shalt thou keep him as a slave, and reign thyself so lord over all thy father's possessions. As for Fernadine, thy middle brother, he is a scholar, and hath no mind but on Aristotle. Let him read on Galen, while thou riflest. Note, gamble, compare modern raffle, with gold, and pour on his book, till thou dost purchase lands. Wit is great wealth, if he have learning it is enough, and so let all rest. In this humor was Saladine, making his brother Rossiter his footboy for the space of two or three years, keeping him in such servile subjection as if he had been the son of any country vassal. The young gentleman bore all with patience, till on a day walking in the garden by himself he began to consider how he was the son of John of Bordeaux, a knight renowned for many victories and a gentleman famous for his virtues. How contrary to the testament of his father he was not only kept from his land and entreated as a servant, but smothered in such secret slavery as he might not attain to any honorable actions. Ah, quoth he to himself, nature working these effectual passions, why should I, that am a gentleman born, pass my time in such unnatural drudgery? Were it not better, either in Paris to become a scholar, or in the court a courtier, or in the field a soldier, than to live a footboy to my own brother? Nature hath lent me wit to conceive, but my brother denied me art to contemplate. I have strength to perform any honorable exploit, but no liberty to accomplish my virtuous endeavors, those good parts that God hath bestowed upon me, the envy of my brother doth smother in obscurity. The harder is my fortune, and the more his frowardness. With that, casting up his hand, he felt hair on his face, and perceiving his beard to bud, for collar he began to blush and swore to himself he would be no more subject to such slavery. As thus he was ruminating of his melancholy passions, in came Saladine with his men, and seeing his brother in a brown study, and to forget his wonted reverence, thought to shake him out of his dumps, thus. Note. Dumps. Reverie. Sirrah, quoth he, what, is your heart on your halfpenny? Note. You have a particular object in view, Greg. Or are you saying a dirge for your father's soul? What, is my dinner ready? At this question. Rossiter, turning his head askance, and bending his brows as if anger there had ploughed the furrows of her wrath, with his eyes full of fire, he made this reply. Dost thou ask me, Saladine, for thy cates? No, food. Ask some of thy churls, who are fit for such an office. I am thy equal by nature, though not by birth, and though thou hast more cards in the bunch, no. I have as many trumps in my hands as thyself. Let me question with thee why thou hast felled my woods, spoiled my manor-houses, and made havoc of such utensils as my father bequeathed unto me. I tell thee, Saladine, either answer me as a brother, or I will trouble thee as an enemy. At this reply of Rossiter's, Saladine smiled as laughing at his presumption, and frowned as checking his folly. He therefore took him up thus shortly. What, sirrah? Well, I see, early pricks the tree that will prove a thorn. 
Hath my familiar conversing with you made you coy? Note, conceited. Or my good looks drawn you to be thus contemptuous? I can quickly remedy such a fault, and I will bend the tree while it is a wand. In faith, sir boy, I have a snaffle for such a headstrong coat. You, sirs, lay hold on him and bind him, and then I will give him a cooling card for his collar. This made Rossiter half mad, that, stepping to a great rake that stood in the garden, he laid such load upon his brother's men, note, laid such load upon, beat, that he hurt some of them, and made the rest of them run away. Saladine, seeing Rossiter so resolute, and with his resolution so valiant, thought his heels his best safety, and took him to a loft adjoining to the garden, whether Rossiter pursued him hotly. Saladine, afraid of his brother's fury, cried out to him thus, Rossiter, be not so rash. I am thy brother and thine elder, and if I have done thee wrong, I'll make thee amends. Revenge not anger in blood, for so shalt thou stain the virtue of old Sir John of Bordeaux. Say wherein thou art discontent, and thou shalt be satisfied. Brothers' frowns ought not to be periods of wrath. What, man, look not so sourly. I know we shall be friends, and better friends than we have been, for amantium iri, amoris red integratio est. These words appeased the collar of Rossiter, for he was of a mild and courteous nature, so that he laid down his weapons, and upon the faith of a gentleman assured his brother he would offer him no prejudice. Whereupon Saladine came down, and after a little parley they embraced each other and became friends, and Saladine promising Rossiter the restitution of all his lands. And what favor else, quoth he, any ways my ability or the nature of a brother may perform? Upon these sugared reconciliations they went into the house arm in arm together, to the great content of all the old servants of Sir John of Bordeaux. Thus continued the pad hidden in the straw. Note, pad, toad until it chanced that Torismond, king of France, had appointed for his pleasure a day of wrestling and of tournament to busy his commons heads, lest, being idle, their thoughts should run upon more serious matters, and call to remembrance their old banished king. A champion there was to stand against all comers, a Norman, a man of tall stature and of great strength, so valiant that in many such conflicts he always bear away the victory, not only overthrowing them which he encountered, but often with the weight of his body killing them outright. Saladine, hearing of this, thinking now not to let the ball fall to the ground, but to take opportunity by the forehead, first by secret means convented with the Norman, note, convented, met, and procured him with rich rewards to swear, that if Rossiter came within his claws, he should never more return to quarrel with Saladine for his possessions. The Norman, desirous of pelf, as quis nisimentus inops oblatum respuit aurum, taking great gifts for little gods, took the crowns of Saladine to perform the stratagem. Having thus the champion tied to his villainous determination by oath, he prosecuted the intent of his purpose thus. He went to young Rossiter, who in all his thoughts reached at honor, and gazed no lower than virtue commanded him, and began to tell him of this tournament and wrestling, 
how the king should be there, and all the chief peers of France, with all the beautiful damosels of the country. Now, brother, quoth he, for the honor of Sir John of Bordeaux, our renowned father, to famous that house that never hath been found without men approved in chivalry, show thy resolution to be peremptory. Note, steadfast. For myself, thou knowest, though I am eldest by birth, yet never having attempted any deeds of arms, I am youngest to perform any martial exploits, knowing better how to survey my lands than to charge my lance. My brother Fernadine, he is at Paris, poring on a few papers, having more insight into sophistry and principles of philosophy than any warlike endeavors. But thou, Rossiter, the youngest in years, but the eldest in valor, art a man of strength, and darest do what honor allows thee. Take thou my father's lance, his sword, and his horse, and hie thee to the tournament, and either there valiantly crack a spear, or try with the Norman for the palm of activity. The words of Saladine were but spurs to a free horse, for he had scarce uttered them ere Rossiter took him in his arms, taking his proffer so kindly, that he promised in what he might to requite his courtesy. The next morrow was the day of the tournament, and Rossiter was so desirous to show his heroical thoughts that he passed the night with little sleep. But as soon as Phoebus had veiled the curtain of the night, and made Aurora blush with giving her the beso des labres note, kiss, in her silver couch, he got him up, and taking his leave of his brother, mounted himself towards the place appointed, thinking every mile ten leagues till he came there. But leaving him so desirous of the journey, to Torismond, the king of France, who, having by force banished Garismond, the lawful king, that lived as an outlaw in the forest of Arden, sought now by all means to keep the French busied with all sports that might breed their content. Amongst the rest he had appointed this solemn tournament, whereunto he in most solemn manner resorted, accompanied with the twelve peers of France, who rather for fear than love graced him with the show of their dutiful favors to feed their eyes, and to make the beholders pleased with the sight of most rare and glistering objects, he had appointed his own daughter Alinda to be there, and the fair Rosalind, daughter to Gerismund, with all the beautiful damosels that were famous for their features in all France. Thus in that place did love and war triumph in a sympathy, for such as were martial might use their lance to be renowned for the excellence of their chivalry and such as were amorous might glut themselves with gazing on the beauties of most heavenly creatures. As every man's eye had his several survey, and fancy was partial in their looks, yet all in general applauded the admirable riches that nature bestowed on the face of Rosalind, for upon her cheeks there seemed a battle between the graces who should bestow most favors to make her excellent. The blush that gloried Luna when she kissed the shepherd on the hills of Latmus was not tainted with such a pleasant dye as the vermilion flourished on the silver hue of Rosalind's countenance. Her eyes were like those lamps that make the wealthy covert of the heavens more gorgeous, sparkling favor and disdain, courteous and yet coy, as if in them Venus had placed all her amorets, and Diana all her chastity. The trammels of her hair, folded in a call of gold, no, call, K, 
cap of open work, so far surpassed the burnished glister of the metal as the sun doth the meanest star in brightness. The tresses that folds in the brows of Apollo were not half so rich to the sight, for in her hairs it seemed love had laid herself in ambush to entrap the proudest eye that durst gaze upon their excellence. What should I need to decipher her particular beauties, when by the censure of all she was the paragon of all earthly perfection? This Rosalind sat, I say, with Alinda as a beholder of these sports, and made the cavaliers crack their lances with more courage. Many deeds of knighthood that day were performed, and many prizes were given according to their several deserts. At last, when the tournament ceased, the wrestling began, and the Norman presented himself as a challenger against all comers. But he looked like Hercules when he advanced himself against Achilles, so that the fury of his countenance amazed all that durst attempt to encounter with him in any deed of activity till at last a lusty Franklin of the country came with two tall men that were his sons of good lineaments and comely personage. The eldest of these, doing his obeisance to the king, entered the list and presented himself to the Norman, who straight coped with him, and as a man that would triumph in the glory of his strength, roused himself with such fury that not only he gave him the fall, but killed him with the weight of his corpulent personage which the younger brother, seeing, leapt presently into the place, and, thirsty after the revenge, assailed the Norman with such valor that, for the first encounter, he brought him to his knees, which repulsed so the Norman that, recovering himself, fear of disgrace doubling his strength, he stepped so sternly to the young Franklin that, taking him up in his arms, he threw him against the ground so violently that he broke his neck, and so ended his days with his brother. At this unlooked-for massacre the people murmured, and were all in a deep passion of pity. But the Franklin, father unto these, never changed his countenance, but as a man of courageous resolution took up the bodies of his sons without show of outward discontent. All this while stood Rossiter and saw this tragedy, who, noting the undoubted virtue of the Franklin's mind, note, virtue, courage, alighted off from his horse, and presently sat down on the grass and commanded his boy to pull off his boots, making him ready to try the strength of this champion. Being furnished as he would, he clapped the Franklin on the shoulder and said thus, Bold yeomen, whose sons have ended the term of their years with honor, for that I see thou scornest fortune with patience, and thwartest the injury of fate with content in brooking the death of thy sons, stand a while, and either see me make a third in their tragedy, or else revenge their fall with an honorable triumph. The Franklin, seeing so goodly a gentleman to give him such courteous comfort, gave him hearty thanks, with promise to pray for his happy success. With that, Rosader veiled Bonnet to the king, and lightly leapt within the lists, where, noting more the company than the combatant, he cast his eyes upon the troop of ladies that glistered there like the stars of heaven. But at last, Love, willing to make him as amorous as he was valiant, presented him with the sight of Rosalind, whose admirable beauty so inveigled the eyes of Rossiter, that, forgetting himself, he stood and fed his looks on the favor of Rosalind's face, which, she perceiving, blushed, 
which was such a doubling of her beauteous excellence, that the bashful red of Aurora at the sight of unacquainted Phaeton was not half so glorious. The Norman, seeing this young gentleman fettered in the looks of the ladies, drave him out of his memento note, musing, with a shake by the shoulder. Rosader, looking back with an angry frown, as if he had been wakened from some pleasant dream, discovered to all by the fury of his countenance that he was a man of some high thoughts. But when they all noted his youth and the sweetness of his visage, with a general applause of favors, they grieved that so goodly a young man should venture in so base an action. But seeing it were to his dishonor to hinder him from his enterprise, they wished him to be graced with the palm of victory. After Rosader was thus called out of his memento by the Norman, he roughly clapped to him with so fierce an encounter that they both fell to the ground, and with the violence of the fall were forced to breathe in which space the Norman called to mind by all tokens that this was he whom Saladine had appointed him to kill, which conjecture made him stretch every limb and try every sinew that, working his death, he might recover the gold which so bountifully was promised him. On the contrary part, Rosader, while he breathed, was not idle, but still cast his eye upon Rosalind, who, to encourage him with a favor, lent him such an amorous look as might have made the most coward desperate. Which glance of Rosalind so fired the passionate desires of Rosader that, turning to the Norman, he ran upon him and braved him with a strong encounter. The Norman received him as valiantly, that there was a sore combat, hard to judge on whose side fortune would be prodigal. At last Rosader, calling to mind the beauty of his new mistress, the fame of his father's honors, and the disgrace that should fall to his house by his misfortune, roused himself and threw the Norman against the ground, falling upon his chest with so willing a weight that the Norman yielded nature her due and Rosader the victory. The death of this champion, as it highly contented the Franklin, as a man satisfied with revenge, so it drew the king and all the peers into a great admiration. No wonder that so young years and so beautiful a personage should contain such martial excellence. But when they knew him to be the youngest son of Sir John of Bordeaux, the king rose from his seat and embraced him, and the peers entreated him with all favorable courtesy, commending both his valor and his virtues, wishing him to go forward in such haughty deeds, that he might attain to the glory of his father's honorable fortunes. As the king and lords graced him with embracing, so the ladies favored him with their looks, especially Rosalind, whom the beauty and valor of Rosader had already touched. But she accounted love a toy, and fancy a momentary passion, that, as it was taken in with a gaze, might be shaken off with a wink, and therefore feared not to dally in the flame. And to make Rosader know she affected him, took from her neck, a jewel, and sent it by a page to the young gentleman. The prize that Venus gave to Paris was not half so pleasing to the Trojan as this gem was to Rosader. For if fortune had sworn to make him sole monarch of the world, he would rather have refused such dignity than have lost the jewels sent him by Rosalind. To return her with the like he was unfurnished, and yet that he might more than in his looks discover his affection, he stepped into a tent, 
and taking pen and paper, writ this fancy. Two suns at once from one fair heaven there shined, ten branches from two boughs tipped all with roses, pure locks more golden than his gold refined, two pearled rows that nature's pride encloses, two mounts fair marble white down soft and dainty, a snow-dyed orb where love increased by pleasure, full woeful makes my heart and body fainty. Her fair, my woe, exceeds all thought and measure. In lines confused my luckless harm appeareth, whom sorrow clouds, whom pleasant smiling cleareth. This sonnet he sent to Rosalind, which when she read she blushed, but with such a sweet content, in that she perceived love had allotted her so amorous a servant. Leaving her to her new entertained fancies, again to Rosader, who, triumphing in the glory of his conquest, accompanied with a troop of young gentlemen that were desirous to be his familiars, went home to his brother Saladines, who was walking before the gates to hear what success his brother Rosader should have, assuring himself of his death, and devising how with dissimulate sorrow to celebrate his funerals. As he was in this thought, he cast up his eye, and saw where Rosader had returned, with the garland on his head, as having won the prize, accompanied with a crew of boon companions. Grieved at this, he stepped in and shut the gate. Rosader, seeing this, and not looking for such unkind entertainment, blushed at the disgrace, and yet, smothering his grief with a smile, he turned to the gentlemen and desired them to hold his brother excused, for he did not this upon any malicious intent or niggardize, but being brought up in the country, he absented himself as not finding his nature fit for such youthful company. Thus he sought to shadow abuses proffered him by his brother, but in vain, for he could by no means be suffered to enter. Whereupon he ran his foot against the door and broke it open, drawing his sword and entering boldly into the hall, where he found none for all were fled but one Adam Spencer, an Englishman, who had been an old and trusty servant of Sir John of Bordeaux. He, for the love he bare to his deceased master, favored the part of Rosader, and gave him and his such entertainment as he could. Rosader gave him thanks, and looking about, seeing the hall empty, said, Gentlemen, you are welcome. Frolic and be merry. You shall be sure to have wine enough, whatsoever your fare be. I tell you, cavaliers, my brother hath in his house five ton of wine, and as long as that lasteth, I beshrew him that spares his liquor. With that he burst open the buttery door, and with the help of Adam Spencer, covered the tables, and set down whatsoever he could find in the house. But what they wanted in meat, Rosader supplied with drink. Yet they had royal cheer, and with all such a hearty welcome as would have made the coarsest meats seem delicates. Note. Dainties. After they had feasted and frolicked it twice or thrice with an upsy freeze, note, but toast, they all took their leaves of Rosader and departed. As soon as they were gone, Rosader, growing impatient of the abuse, drew his sword and swore to be revenged on the discourteous Saladine. Yet by the means of Adam Spencer, who sought to continue friendship and amity betwixt the brethren, and through the flattering submission of Saladine, they were once again reconciled and put up all for past injuries with a peaceable agreement, living together for a good space in such brotherly love as did not only rejoice the servants, 
but made all the gentlemen and bordering neighbors glad of such friendly concord. Saladine, hiding fire in the straw, and concealing a poisoned hate in a peaceable countenance, yet deferring the intent of his wrath till fitter opportunity, he showed himself a great favorer of his brother's virtuous endeavors, where, leaving them in this happy league, let us return to Rosalind. Rosalind, returning home from the triumph, after she waxed solitary, love presented her with the idea of Rosader's perfection, and taking her at discovert, struck her so deep as she felt herself grow passing passionate. She began to call to mind the comeliness of his person, the honor of his parents, and the virtues that excelling both made him so gracious in the eyes of every one sucking in thus the honey of love by imprinting in her thoughts his rare qualities she began to surfeit with the contemplation of his virtuous conditions but when she called to remembrance her present estate and the hardness of her fortunes desire began to shrink and fancy to veil bonnet that between a chaos of confused thoughts she began to debate with herself in this manner rosalind's passion infortunate rosalind whose misfortunes are more than thy years, and whose passions are greater than thy patience. The blossoms of thy youth are mixed with the frosts of envy, and the hope of thy ensuing fruits perish in the bud. Thy father is by Torismund banished from the crown, and thou, the unhappy daughter of a king, detained captive, living as disquieted in thy thoughts as thy father discontented in his exile. Ah, Rosalind, what cares wait upon a crown? What griefs are incident to dignity? What sorrows haunt royal palaces? The greatest seas have the sorest storms, the highest birth subject to the most bale, and of all trees the cedars soonest shake with the wind. Small currents are ever calm, low valleys not scorched in any lightnings, nor base men tied to any baleful prejudice. Fortune flies, and if she touch poverty, it is with her heel rather disdaining their want with a frown than envying their wealth with disparagement. O oh, Rosalind, hadst thou been born low, thou hadst not fallen so high. And yet, being great of blood, thine honor is more if thou brookest misfortune with patience. Suppose I contrary fortune with content, yet fates, unwilling to have me any way happy, have forced love to set my thoughts on fire with fancy. Love, Rosalind! Becometh it women in distress to think of love? Tush! Desire hath no respect of persons. Cupid is blind, and shooteth at random. As soon hitting a rag as a robe, and piercing as soon the bosom of a captive as the breast of a libertine. Thou speakest it, poor Rosalind, by experience, for being every way distressed, surcharged with cares, and overgrown with sorrows, yet amidst the heap of all these mishaps, Love hath lodged in thy heart the perfection of young Rosader, a man every way absolute, as well for his inward life as for his outward lineaments, able to content the eye with beauty and the ear with the report of his virtue. But consider, Rosalind, his fortunes and thy present estate. Thou art poor and without patrimony, and yet the daughter of a prince. He, a younger brother, and void of such possessions as either might maintain thy dignities, or revenge thy father's injuries. And hast thou not learned this of other ladies, that lovers cannot live by looks, that women's ears are sooner content with a dram of give me than a pound of hear me? 
that gold is sweeter than eloquence, that love is a fire and wealth is the fuel, that Venus' coffers should be ever full. Then Rosalind, seeing Rosader is poor, think him less beautiful because he is in want, and account his virtues but qualities of course, for that he is not endued with wealth. Doth not Horace tell thee what method is to be used in love? Quirenda pecunia primum, post numos virtus? Tush, Rosalind, be not over rash, leap not before thou look, either love such a one as may with his lands purchase thy liberty, or else love not at all. Choose not a fair face with an empty purse, but say, as most women used to say, si nihil atuleris ibis homera foras. Why, Rosalind, can such base thoughts harbor in such high beauties? Can the degree of a princess, the daughter of Gerismund, harbor such servile conceits as to prize gold more than honor, or to measure a gentleman by his wealth, not by his virtues? No, Rosalind, blush at thy base resolution, and say, if thou lovest, either Rosader or none. And why? Because Rosader is both beautiful and virtuous. Smiling to herself to think of her new entertained passions, Taking up her lute that lay by her, she warbled out this ditty, Rosalind's Madrigal. Love in my bosom like a bee doth suck his sweet. Now with his wings he plays with me, now with his feet. Within mine eyes he makes his nest, his bed amidst my tender breast. My kisses are his daily feast, and yet he robs me of my rest. Ah, wanton will ye, and if I sleep, then percheth he with pretty flight, And makes his pillow of my knee the live-long night. Strike I my lute, he tunes the string, He music plays, if so I sing, He lends me every lovely thing, Yet cruel he my heart doth sting, Whist, wanton, still ye, Else I with roses every day will whip you hence, And bind you when you long to play for your offence. I'll shut mine eyes to keep you in, and make you fast it for your sin, I'll count your power not worth a pin. Alas, what hereby shall I win if he gainsay me? What if I beat the wanton boy with many a rod? He will repay me with annoy because of God. Then sit thou safely on my knee, and let thy bower my bosom be. Lurk in mine eyes, I like of thee. O Cupid, so thou pity me, spare not, but play thee. Scarce had Rosalind ended her madrigal before Torismond came in with his daughter Elinda, and many of the peers of France, who were enamoured of her beauty, which Torismond perceiving, fearing lest her perfection might be the beginning of his prejudice, and the hope of his fruit end in the beginning of her blossoms, he thought to banish her from the court, for, quoth he to himself, her face is so full of favour, that it pleads pity in the eye of every man. Her beauty is so heavenly and divine that she will prove to me as Helen did to Priam. Some one of the peers will aim at her love, end the marriage, and then, in his wife's right, attempt the kingdom. To prevent, therefore, had I wist in all these actions, she tarries not about the court, but shall as an exile either wander to her father or else seek other fortunes. In this humor, with a stern countenance full of wrath, he breathed out this censure unto her before the peers, 
that charged her that that night she were not seen about the court. For, quoth he, I have heard of thy aspiring speeches and intended treasons. This doom was strange unto Rosalind, and presently, covered with the shield of her innocence, she boldly brake out in reverend terms to have cleared herself. But Torismond would admit of no reason, nor durst his lords plead for Rosalind, although her beauty had made some of them passionate, seeing the figure of wrath portrayed in his brow. Standing thus all mute, and Rosalind amazed, Alinda, who loved her more than herself, with grief in her heart and tears in her eyes, falling down on her knees, began to entreat her father thus. Alinda's oration to her father in defense of fair Rosalind. If, mighty Torismond, I offend in pleading for my friend, let the law of amity crave pardon for my boldness. For where there is depth of affection, there friendship alloweth a privilege. Rosalind and I have been fostered up from our infancies, and nursed under the harbor of our conversing together with such private familiarities that custom had wrought a union of our nature, and the sympathy of our affections such a secret love, that we have two bodies and one soul. Then marvel not, great Torismond, if, seeing my friend distressed, I find myself perplexed with a thousand sorrows, for her virtuous and honorable thoughts, which are the glories that maketh women excellent, they be such as may challenge love and race out suspicion. Her obedience to your majesty, I refer to the censure of your own eye, that since her father's exile hath smothered all griefs with patience, and in the absence of nature hath honored you with all duty as her own father by nourature, not in word uttering any discontent, nor in thought, as far as conjecture may reach, hammering on revenge, only in all her actions seeking to please you and win my favor. Her wisdom, silence, chastity, and other such rich qualities I need not decipher. Only it rests for me to conclude in one word, that she is innocent. If then fortune who triumphs in a variety of miseries hath presented some envious person as minister of her intended stratagem to taint Rosalind with any surmise of treason, let him be brought to her face and confirm his accusation by witnesses, which proved let her die, and Alinda will execute the massacre. If none can avouch any confirmed relation of her intent, use justice, my lord, it is the glory of a king, and let her live in your wanted favor. For if you banish her, myself as co-partner of her hard fortunes will participate in exile some part of her extremities. Torismond, at this speech of Belinda, covered his face with such a frown as tyranny seemed to sit triumphant in his forehead, and checked her up. Note. Stop with such taunts as made the lords that only were hearers to tremble. Proud girl, quoth he, hath my looks made thee so light of tongue, or my favors encouraged thee to be so forward that thou darest presume to preach after thy father? Hath not my years more experience than thy youth, and the winter of mine age deeper insight into civil policy than the prime of thy flourishing days? Note. Prime Spring. The old lion avoids the toils where the young one leaps into the net. The care of age is provident and foresees much. Suspicion is a virtue where a man holds his enemy in his bosom. Thou, fond girl, measurest all by present affection, and as thy heart loves thy thoughts censure. Note, decide. 
but if thou knewest that in liking Rosalind thou hatchest up a bird to peck out thine own eyes, thou wouldst entreat as much for her absence as now thou delightest in her presence. But why do I allege policy to thee? Sit you down, Hussop, and fall to your needle. If idleness make you so wanton, or liberty so malapert, I can quickly tie you to a sharper task, and you, maid, this night be packing, either into Arden to your father, or whither best it shall content your humor, but in the court you shall not abide. This rigorous reply of Torismon nothing amazed Alinda, for still she prosecuted her plea in the defense of Rosalind, wishing her father, if his censure might not be reversed, that he would appoint her partner of her exile, which, if he refused to do, either she would by some secret means steal out and follow her, or else end her days with some desperate kind of death. When Torismond heard his daughter so resolute, his heart was so hardened against her that he set down a definite and peremptory sentence that they should both be banished, which presently was done, the tyrant rather choosing to hazard the loss of his only child than any ways to put in question the state of his kingdom. So suspicious and fearful is the conscience of a usurper. Well, Although his lords persuaded him to retain his own daughter, yet his resolution might not be reversed. But both of them must away from the court without either more company or delay. In he went with great melancholy, and left these two ladies alone. Rosalind waxed very sad, and sat down and wept. Alinda, she smiled, and, sitting by her friend, began thus to comfort her. Alinda's comfort to perplexed Rosalind. Why, how now, Rosalind, dismayed with a frown of contrary fortune? Have I not oft heard thee say that high minds were discovered in fortune's contempt, and heroical seen in the depth of extremities? Thou wert wont to tell others that complained of distress that the sweetest salve for misery was patience, and the only medicine for want, that precious and plaster of content. Being such a good physician to others, Wilt thou not minister receipts to thyself? But perchance thou wilt say, Consulenti nunquam caput doluit. Why then, if the patients that are sick of this disease can find in themselves neither reason to persuade nor art to cure, yet, Rosalind, admit of the counsel of a friend, and apply the salves that may appease thy passions. If thou grievest, that being the daughter of a prince, and envy thwarteth thee with such hard exigence, Note necessities. Think that royalty is a fair mark, that crowns have crosses when mirth is in cottages, that the fairer the rose is, the sooner it is bitten with caterpillars. The more orient the pearl is. Note orient precious, because the most valued gems came from the orient. The more apt to take a blemish, and the greatest birth, as it hath most honor, so it hath much envy. If then fortune aimeth at the fairest, be patient, Rosalind, for first by thine exile thou goest to thy father. Nature is higher prized than wealth, and the love of one's parents ought to be more precious than all dignities. Why then doth my Rosalind grieve at the frown of Torismond, who by offering her a prejudice proffers her a greater pleasure, and more, mad lass, to be melancholy when thou hast with thee Alinda? a friend who will be a faithful co-partner of all thy misfortunes, who hath left her father to follow thee, and chooseth rather to brook all extremities than to forsake thy presence. 
What, Rosalind, solam in miseris, socios habuissa doloris? Cheerly, woman, as we have been bedfellows in royalty, we will be fellow-mates in poverty. I will ever be thy Alinda, and thou shalt ever rest to me, Rosalind. So shall the world canonize our friendship, and speak of Rosalind and Alinda as they did of Pylades and Orestes. And if ever fortune smile, and we return to our former honor, then, folding ourselves in the suite of our friendship, we shall merrily say, calling to mind our forepassed miseries, Olim haec meminissa juabit. At this, Rosalind began to comfort her, and, after she had wept a few kind tears in the bosom of her Alinda, she gave her hearty thanks, and then they sat them down to consult how they should travel. Alinda grieved at nothing but that they might have no man in their company, saying it would be their greatest prejudice in that two women went wandering without either guide or attendant. Tush, quoth Rosalind, art thou a woman, and hast not a sudden shift to prevent a misfortune? I, thou seest, am of a tall stature, and would very well become the person in peril of a page. Thou shalt be my mistress, and I will play the man so properly that, trust me, in what company soever I come, I will not be discovered. I will buy me a suit, and have my rapier very handsomely at my side, and if any knave offer wrong, your page will show him the point of his weapon. End of part one.